Ezekiel chapter 46, verses 16 through 24. Ezekiel 46, starting in verse 16. Thus says the Lord God, If the prince makes a gift to any of his sons as his inheritance, it shall belong to his sons. It is their property by inheritance. But if he makes a gift out of his inheritance to one of his servants, it shall be his to the year of liberty. Then it shall revert to the prince. Surely it is his inheritance. It shall belong to his sons. The prince shall not take any of the inheritance of the people, thrusting them out of their property. He shall give his sons their inheritance out of his own property, so that none of my people shall be scattered from his property. Then he brought me through the entrance to which was at the side of the gate to the north row of the holy chambers for the priests. And behold, a place was there at the extreme western end of them. And he said to me, this is the place where the priest shall boil the guilt offering and the sin offering and where they shall bake the grain offering in order not to bring them out into the outer court and so transmit holiness to the people. Then he brought me out to the outer court and he led me around to the four corners of the court. And behold, in each of the corner of the court, there was another court. And the four corners of the court were small courts, 40 cubits long and 30 broad, and four were of the same size. On the inside, around each of the four courts, was a row of masonry with hearths made at the bottom of the rows all around. Then he said to me, These are the kitchens where those who minister at the temple shall boil the sacrifices of the people. Now, we've already broken both of these passages down a little bit in previous studies because we've used them as they've referred to other sections we've studied. But once again, we see that God gives clear instructions for how to keep the land that he's going to give to each respective tribe or family, how to keep it in each tribe and family. We need to be reminded that God gave Adam and Eve a beautiful land to live in and possess, but because of sin and disobedience, they lost that land. But God also promised Abraham that he would give his descendants a specific parcel of land as in his inheritance. But if they disobeyed him, he'd remove them from the land. So go with me to Genesis chapter 13. As we get to tonight, the distribution of the land during the millennial kingdom to the tribes of Israel. Let's go back to the promise of God in Genesis chapter 13. Verses 14 through 17. It says, The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. All right. Again, we see God's promise to give the land to Abraham and to his offspring for how long? Forever. As you've heard me say before, but let me remind you, did Abraham ever receive the land? No. Neither did his son Isaac, nor did Jacob. That's further evidence of the fact that there has to be a millennial kingdom where Jesus comes and rules and reigns on this earth, because otherwise God would have broken his promise to give the land to Abraham. He's never received it yet. The scriptures say that in the book of Hebrews chapter 11. It talks about that. And that's when Jesus, remember, he said that men are going to sit at the feast in the kingdom with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. During that time, that land will be given to him. And that's when he'll receive that promise. But go to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Look at verses 1 through 25. Here we see that God brings them into the promised land, but he puts some conditions. It says, now, chapter 6 of Deuteronomy, this is the commandment that the statutes and the rules of the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son, and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord the God of your fathers has promised promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And all these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. 
Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God is in your midst, and He's a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and He destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, as you tested Him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God, and His testimonies, and His statutes, which He has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give your fathers, by thrusting out all your enemies from before you, as the Lord has promised. And, oh, when your son asks you in time to come, what's the meaning of this testimonies, and the statutes, and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed us signs and wonders and great, grievous, again, great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are to this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as He has commanded us. Go over to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Look at verses 25 through 31. God speaking through Moses says, And when you father, you, you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything... And by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you're going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed, and the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find Him, if you search after Him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you, in the latter days you will return to the Lord your God and obey His voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that He swore to them. Now, here we see a quick summation of what I want you to see. God promised that land to Abraham and to his descendants forever. Of course, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob never got it fulfilled in their lifetime. It wasn't until the time of Moses, 400 and something years later, that they actually went into the promised land. And God told them, I'm bringing you in. And if you obey me, you get to stay. If you don't, I'm going to remove you and I'm going to scatter you among the people. But in the latter days, even though you'll be few in number, you're going to turn to me when you turn to me with your whole heart. And I'm going to gather you back and bring you. Now, even though the nation of Israel has become a nation again in 1948 and following, have they turned fully back to the Lord their God with all their heart? Folks, we've got to understand that as awesome as it is that they're a nation, and as much as that shows that we're in the last days, that's just simply set the stage for the prophecies of the latter days to be fulfilled because Israel had to be in the land when the prophecies were fulfilled. But there's another scattering still coming. During the tribulation period, and especially at the midpoint, they're going to be chased out, and they're going to run, and they're going to be scattered and the nation of Israel, even though there are all, back, not all, but many are back in the land, there are still Jews all across the globe. The fulfillment of these promises aren't going to be until the end of the tribulation period at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. But what did God say? Because of my promise to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in the very end, that small group of you that are left, I'm going to have you come back into the land. And that's what we're going to see is going to happen today as we get to that section of Ezekiel. Do you remember the forever part of God's promise to Abraham in chapter 13? We read that. Well, even if you don't, God does. And he remembers that he told him that I'm going to give it to you and your descendants as their inheritance forever. Now, again, when Israel will be regathered in obedience during the millennial kingdom, God will finally fulfill the full land promised to Abraham, and he won't let any humans mess it up this time. Have you noticed the very clear instructions here during Ezekiel at the end about who's to get what and and how they're not to do anything like that, God's going to make sure that that's going to be fulfilled. How do we know this? Because we already saw back in Ezekiel 36. Remember in chapter 36, verses 22 and following, I'm going to erase your sin, I'm going to sprinkle you with clean water, and I'm going to put my spirit within you and move you to obey my commands. He's going to be in control of them at that time, and he will keep, have them keep it. Jump over to chapter 47 of Ezekiel. Look at verses 1 through 12. 
Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate, and he led me around on the outside of the outer gate that faces toward the east, and behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the men measured a thousand cubits, and then he led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. And again he measured a thousand, and he led me through the water, and it was knee deep. And again he measured a thousand, and led me through the water, and it was waist deep. And again he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish, for this water goes there. And the waters of the sea may become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea, from Engedi to Englaim. It will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. But its swamps and its marshes will not become fresh. They are to be left for salt." And on the banks on both sides of the river there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. I have been looking forward to getting to this chapter because this is one of my favorite passages of Scripture because here we see Ezekiel is shown that from the temple begins this trickle of water from the throne of God, and it goes underneath the temple, and it comes out on the eastern side, south of the eastern gate. Remember the outside gate that's been sealed? Just to the south of that gate, flowing out, it's only ankle deep. And they measure a thousand cubits, by the way, is about a third of a mile. And he measures about a third of a mile, and it's now, it's ankle deep there. And then he goes a third of a mile, and it's knee deep. And then he goes another third of the mile, and it's waist deep. So now we're about a mile east of the temple. It's waist deep, but it's clear as crystal. And then another third mile later, it's so deep, you can't cross it. Well, you can swim across if you want, but it's over your head. I absolutely love, love, love fresh water. I'll be honest with you, we live here in the ocean. The ocean's beautiful and all that kind of stuff. And I don't mind sitting on the beach and watching the waves. I love water, but there's something about fresh water for me. Now, i got to be honest with you, I don't consider the lakes here in Florida fresh water very much because they're kind of brown and kind of nasty and they got things that bite in them. We were just talking over here on the New England table over here uh, that I'm going to be preaching up in Alton Bay this summer in Lake Winnipesaukee. I can't wait to go swim again in Lake Winnipesaukee this summer. It's so beautiful and so clear. When I was preaching up in Virginia a couple years back, it was springtime and there's this golf course that I love to play on, and through the golf course runs this brook. And in the spring, because of the melting snow, it actually gets pretty deep, and it rushes. It's so clear. It's so cool. One day I was playing golf, and I couldn't take it anymore. I had to take my shoes and socks off and get in that water. And as I sat there with my feet sitting on a little bridge, dangling my feet in the water, and just thanking God for how beautiful it was, I looked over to the left, and there was a snake. <laughs> and it wasn't after me, though. It was too busy eating a leech. And I thought, man, we're not in the millennial kingdom yet. We're not in the millennial kingdom. It was close. It was a taste. Folks, I'm telling you, I'm going to jump in this river. But it flows east, and then it's going to turn south and go into the Dead Sea. Any of you ever been over to Israel? I've never been. Has anybody ever been to Israel? You get to swim in the Dead Sea or at least see the Dead Sea? You can float in it because there's so much salt in it you can't sink. It's going to turn that fresh. It's going to be an amazing, amazing time. Now, the, it'll flow from the temple, start east, then make its way to the Dead Sea. Did you know that the prophets foretold of this river? Not just Ezekiel. Go with me to Joel chapter 3. Joel chapter 3.
And look at verses 17 and 18. Joel chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall flow, come forth from the house of the Lord, and water the valley of Shittim. We just saw that in Ezekiel 47. It comes from the temple, and it waters the valley. Go to Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 14. Look at just verse 8. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 8. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in the summer as in winter. Here we see now a little bit more. It's not only going to flow from the temple down to the Dead Sea and turn it fresh. There's actually going to be a river that flows from Jerusalem out to the Mediterranean Sea. And it's going to be fresh. It's going to be beautiful. As with many things that we've already been seeing in the Millennial Kingdom, this river is going to be a real, tangible picture of Jesus' cleansing and His healing through His Spirit. That's what this is a picture of. Now, it's not symbolic. Although it's symbolic, it's real. It's not just symbolic, it's literal. It's going to be a literal river that is a picture of Christ's cleansing, the cleansing that comes from the throne. And by the way, who's sitting there at that throne where the river starts? Jesus. And it turns everything it touches fresh. Everything thrives because of its contact. Go, uh, go back to Ezekiel chapter 47 and look at it again at verse 12. It says, And on the banks of both sides of the river there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month. Because the water for them flows from the sanctuary, their fruit will be for food, and their leaves for what? Healing, because of its contact with that river. Go to John chapter 4. Again, it's been a picture of the cleansing that comes from the relationship with God through Christ and His Holy Spirit. John chapter 4, verse 10, Jesus talking with the woman at the well. And he says in verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked Him, and He would have given you living water. Look at verse 14. Jesus again says to her, But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Go to John chapter 7. Look at verses 37 through 39. In John chapter 7 verse 37. If I get to John 7 it would read a lot better. There we go. John 7. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, we got a couple things I want to pull out from here. One, again, the Bible's full of symbolic language. But whenever it uses symbolic language, it then explains what the symbolism is. If it doesn't tell you what it symbolizes, take it literally, it's what it means. Don't say, well, I think it means this. No, it, it is what it is. But if it is symbolic, the Bible will tell you it's symbolic. Like when Jesus is on the Isle of Patmos there with John in Revelation chapter 1, and Jesus is there, and, he, and John sees the 12 stars in his hand, and he's among the, the, 12, the seven lampstands. And then the scripture goes on and says the seven lampstands are the seven churches, and the, 12, the, the, sorry, the seven stars are the messengers to the churches. Again, whenever it's symbolic, the Bible tells you what it symbolizes. But there's also something else that Jesus says here. He says, whoever in verse 38, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, I'm not going to ask this, you to answer this unless you can. But where has the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water? Some of you say, Jim, you just read it to us in John chapter 4. No, you can't count John chapter 4 because that wasn't scripture yet. And it was because Jesus said it, but at the same time, it hadn't been written down and recorded. John didn't write his gospel till years later. 
So Jesus, when he says, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of water, had it have been quoting from the Old Testament? Oh, is it Ezekiel? Actually, partially Ezekiel. But actually, go with me to Jeremiah chapter 2. Because Ezekiel talks about that river that's going to float, turn the millennial kingdom Dead Sea fresh, but it doesn't really talk about out of their heart flowing rivers of living water. But go to Jeremiah chapter 2, and you're going to see all through the scriptures, the Old Testament has been pointing to faith in Christ, turning to God in faith, drinking of Him, who, well, let me just read it to you. Jeremiah chapter 2, look at verse 13. God says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now God calls himself the fountain of living water. Go to Isaiah chapter 12. Isaiah chapter 12. I heard someone over there say, I just got to Jeremiah. If we don't finish Ezekiel, it's that table's fault right there. Isaiah chapter 12. <laughs> Isaiah chapter 12. You got New England is at your table too, so be careful. Look at verses, uh, verses 2 and 3. Isaiah 12, verses 2 and 3. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. With you, joy will draw water from the wells of salvation. Again, the scriptures have been talking about this fountain of living water, describing God. Salvation is tied to the fountain of living water. Go to Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah chapter 44, look at verses 1 through 5. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen, Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb, and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like the willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. Again, now we're seeing he's going to pour the Holy Spirit upon them. Again, the fountains of living water is God. Uh, the rivers of living water is the Holy Spirit. It's tied to salvation coming from God. Come to drink of me. They're drinking of other things that they've hewn for themselves that aren't going to solve. But if they come to me, they can drink. Go to Zechariah chapter 13 and look at verse 1. Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Who is that fountain? It's Jesus. For those of you that are going to be able to come to the series that I'm going to be teaching on the Holy Spirit, you're going to see that in John chapter 14, Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to come to you. I'm going to ask the Father. And he's going to give you a helper to be with you, the Holy Spirit. On that day, you're going to realize that I'm in you and you're in me and I'm in my Father. Hang on for a second. Did Jesus just say that he was going to ask the Father and the Father was going to send the Holy Spirit to be with them forever? But then Jesus says, on that day, you're going to realize that I'm in you. So which is it? Is it the Holy Spirit that's going to be in me or is Jesus going to be in me? Yes. It's all Jesus. It's God. He's God. He's, if you've seen him, you've seen the Father. All along, folks, you've got to understand something. The scripture is so clear that even in the Old Testament, God has been saying to them, come to me, the fountain of living waters. Come to me and drink. I will pour out my spirit upon you. And you will say, my, the Lord is, I am the Lord's and he belongs to me. And so when he says to the woman, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask me to give you a drink of the living water. Oh, it wasn't that he just said to her something that she should have never, ever heard before. The Old Testament had been offering this salvation, this drinking of him and faith all along. What's this river going to be like in the millennial kingdom? Well, it's going to be awesome, first off, but it's going to be a picture of this truth that has been there all along. Oh, by the way, let me just make a little commercial and say this to you as well. As Christians, you might have drank from the Holy Spirit, 
and been saved. But how often do we hear Christians use terms like burned out? Will the Bible, does the Bible teach that if you're walking in the spirit on a daily basis, you'll ever burn out? No, he promised with rivers of living water, we never thirst again. But what happens is, is we don't understand that in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant, but I want you to know what the Lord's will is. Don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And that's not a one-time special occurrence where God pours His Spirit upon you. No, it's a welling up from within. And in the Greek, which we're going to look at in the week coming up, when we're preaching revival there, Grant, we're going to take a look at the fact that he says, keep on drinking on a daily basis. Be being filled. And how do you do that? You daily drink from Jesus. How do you do that? By faith. By faith. You believe his word. You trust him. You walk in obedience. And you experience his power come through you. So if you're thirsty today, Jesus says, if you're thirsty, come to me. Stop looking for solutions to your problems that only can be solved by the Lord. Stop looking for hewned out cisterns of your own making. If you've never been saved, come to Jesus and receive that salvation. Begin this relationship with the living water. If you know Jesus, experience the promise that he has that you will never be thirsty again. It's time that we really understood this awesome gift of the Holy Spirit that's come to indwell us. Go to Ezekiel chapter 47. Look at verses 13 through 23. Thus says the Lord God, this is the boundary by which you shall divide the land for inheritance among the twelve tribes of Israel. Joseph, Joseph shall have two portions, and you shall divide equally what I swore to give your fathers. This land shall fall to you as your inheritance. This shall be the boundary of the land on the north side, from the great sea by the way of Hethlon, to Lebo Hamath, and to Zedad, Beroth, Beretha, Sibriam, which lies on the border between Damascus and Hamath, as far as Hazar Hation, which is on the border of Haran. So the boundary shall run from the sea to Hazarinan, which is on the northern border of Damascus, with the border of Hamath to the north. And this shall be the north side. On the east side, the boundary shall run between Haran and Damascus, along the Jordan between Gilead and the land of Israel, to the eastern sea, and as far as Tamar. This shall be the, on the east side. And on the south side it shall run from Tamar as far as the waters of Meribah, Kadesh, and from there along the brook of Egypt to the great sea. This shall be the south side. On the west side the great sea shall be the boundary. To a point opposite Lebo Hamath, this shall be the west side. So you shall divide this land among you according to the tribes of Israel. You shall allot it as an inheritance for yourselves and for the sojourners who reside among you and have had children among you. They shall be to you as native-born children of Israel. With you they shall be allotted an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. And whatever the tribe the sojourner resides, there you shall assign him his inheritance, declares the Lord God. Now, here we see how far the boundaries of the land of Israel are going to be. It's going to be as far north as Hamath. By the way, you were handed out a sheet again tonight. You've got last week's that may help you. We've got another one here, that if, the one you handed out to, to you tonight. It's a side-by-side -side comparison of where the tribes were in the time of Joshua. And you see there, if you don't have one and you need one, raise your hand and Becky will run you one. Does anybody everybody have one? I want you to have one. I think she did a great job. Everybody's got one. That's good. On the left-hand side, you see where the 12 tribes of Israel were during the time of Joshua when they went into the land the first time. But now here we see on the right-hand side, this is where they're going to be during the Millennial Kingdom. Obviously not the same boundary lines, obviously not the same allotment of, 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 the, bound, of uh, the tribal portions. So keep in mind, this has to be a different time than what happened before that we're looking at in Ezekiel. So as far north as Hamath is where it's going to be, uh, which is north of Damascus, and it's going to go all the way far, as far south as Meribah Kadesh. All right. The western border will be the Mediterranean Sea, and the eastern border will be the Jordan River to the Dead Sea. Now, needless to say, Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria, as well as many other nations today, would not be in favor of this distribution of the land, correct? But in this time, the Millennial Kingdom, the only ones who are going to live in this kingdom will be the remnant Jews, and as we just saw at the end of this section, the remnant, sorry, the Gentiles who were pro-Israel and Jesus during the tribulation period. We see at the end of this chapter, they're going to be sojourners among them, and if they're willing to live among them, they get to live with them as well. 
If you remember from our Revelation study, the church, sorry, the, the bride is going to be made up of the Jews and the church, believing Jews and the church. In the New Jerusalem, we see that the foundations are the 12 apostles, the gates of the 12, uh, sorry, the foundations are the, yeah, the 12 apostles and the gates of the 12 tribes. It's a mixture of the believing church and, and also the Jews. So God is pro-Israel, but he's also pro-Gentile as well. But what's the caveat <laughs> if their faith is in God through Jesus Christ? All right. Now, what I want to do is take us to Ezekiel chapter 48 and look at verses 1 through 29, and we'll spend the rest of our time tonight breaking this all down. There's some things I want to kind of show you. Ezekiel 48, verses 1 through the end of the, uh, through verse 29. We'll stop at verse 29. These are the names of the tribes beginning at the northern extreme beside the way of Heth Hethlon to Lebo Hamath and as far as Hazaranan, which is on the northern border of Damascus over against Hamath and extending from the east side to the west. Dan gets one portion adjoining to the territory. You see that he's up there at the northern border. And adjoining to the territory of Dan from the east to the west, there will be Asher, one portion. And adjoining to the territory of Asher from the east to the west, Naphtali, one portion. Adjoining to the territory of Naphtali from the east side to the west is Manasseh, one portion. Adjoining to the territory of Manasseh from the east side to the west is Ephraim, one portion. Adjoining to the territory of Ephraim from the east side to the west is Reuben, one portion. Adjoining to the territory of Reuben from the east side to the west, Judah, one portion. Adjoining to the territory of Judah from the east side to the west shall be the portion which you shall set apart, the section we studied last week. 25,000 cubits in breadth and in length equal to one of the tribal portions from the east side to the west, with the sanctuary in the midst of it. The portion that you shall set apart for the Lord shall be 25,000 cubits in length and 20,000 in breadth. These shall be the allotments of the holy portion. The priest shall have an allotment measuring 25,000 cubits on the northern side, 10,000 cubits in breadth on the western side, 10,000 in breadth on the eastern side, and 25,000 in length on the southern side, with the sanctuary of the Lord in the midst of it. This shall be for the one be for the consecrated priests, the sons of Zadok, who kept my charge, who did not go astray when the people of Israel went astray as the Levites did. And it shall belong to them as a special portion from the holy portion of the land, a most holy place, adjoining the territory of the Levites, and alongside the territory of the priests. The Levites shall have an allotment, 25,000 cubits in length and 10,000 in breadth. The whole length shall be 25,000 cubits and in, in the breadth 20,000. They shall not sell or exchange any of it. They shall not alienate this choice portion of the land, for it is holy to the Lord. Now the remainder, 5,000 cubits in breadth and 25,000 in length, shall be for a common use for the city, for dwellings and for open country in the midst of it. It shall be, it shall be the city. And these shall be its measurements. The north side of the city, 4,500 cubits. The south side, 4,500. The east side, 4,500. And the west side, 4,500. And the city shall have open land on the north side, North 250 cubits, on the south 250, on the east 250, and on the west 250. The remainder of the length alongside the holy portion shall be 10,000 cubits to the east and 10,000 to the west, and it shall be alongside the holy portion. It shall produce, it, its produce shall be food for the workers of the city, and the workers of the city from all the tribes of Israel shall till it. The whole portion that you shall set apart shall be 25,000 cubits square, that is the holy portion together with the property of the city." Now what remains on both sides of the holy portion and, the, of the, and of the property of the city shall belong to the prince, extending from the 25,000 cubits of the holy portion to the east border and westward from the 25,000 cubits to the west border, parallel to the tribal portions, it shall belong to the prince. Now the holy portion with the sanctuary of the temple shall uh, be in its midst. It shall separate from the property of the Levites and the property of the city, which are in the midst of that, which belong to the prince. The portion of the prince shall be between the territory uh, sorry, shall be between the territory of Judah and the territory of Benjamin. Now, as for the rest of the tribes from the east side to the west, now we're going to continue south of the holy portion, Benjamin, one portion, adjoining to the territory of Benjamin from the east side to the west, Simeon, one portion, adjoining to the territory of Simeon from the east side to the west, Issachar, one portion, adjoining to the territory of Issachar, from the east side to the west, Zebulun, one portion. Adjoining to the territory of Zebulun from one east side to the west, Gad, one portion. And adjoining to the territory of Gad to the south, the boundary shall run from Tamar to the waters of Meribah, Kadesh. From there along the brook of Egypt to the great sea, this is the land that you shall allot as an inheritance among the tribes of Israel, and these are their portions, declares the Lord God. Now, 
Here we see the very specific areas of division of the land of Israel in the millennial kingdom. You will notice that Joseph is not specifically listed as a tribe. But he is. Through two of his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Go back to chapter 47 and look again at verse 13. Thus says the Lord God, this is the boundary by which you shall divide the land for inheritance among the twelve tribes of Israel. Joseph shall have two portions. Joseph's going to get two portions. Well, how come Joseph gets two portions? Go back with me to Genesis chapter 48. Genesis chapter 48. And look at verses 1 through 20. Since after this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel, which was Jacob, his name was tamed to Israel, summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. I will make of you a company of peoples, and I will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, he's talking to Joseph now, they're mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are, and the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan to, Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died on the land, sorry, in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrathah, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, They are my sons, whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and he brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh. In other words, when he prayed, he crossed his arms, crossing his hands. For Manasseh was firstborn, and he blessed Joseph, and he said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. And let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one's the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He shall also become a people, and, he, and they also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel, pronounce blessing, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Isn't that interesting how Joseph was instrumental in getting his older brother's blessing, and then he had a problem with his father doing the same thing with his kids? You know? <laughs> He's like, ah, it's okay if I do it, but don't you do it. Yeah, well, then we all have that problem. But there in this instance, the two children that were born to Joseph, he actually, sorry, Jacob, back up. Jacob is the one that did it, and now he switched it over on his grandsons. So uh, Joseph now had two children in Egypt, and those two children become the sons of Israel. Now, you say, wait a minute, that makes 13 tribes. No, no, no. In the distribution of the land, which tribe is missing here in the millennial kingdom? Levi. But are they left out? No, they're actually in that holy portion. They're getting taken care of. There's 12 tribes on top of the Levites now during the millennial kingdom. Now, some of you may also notice that Dan is back. Now, some of you say, what do you mean Dan is back? If you remember from our Revelation study in chapter 7 of Revelation, go to Revelation chapter 7. When they list the 12 tribes of Israel who are going to be producing the 144,000 Jewish witnesses during the tribulation period, many people have noticed that Dan is not listed. Revelation chapter 7, look at verses 4 through 8. 
And I heard the number of, number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. Then you see there's Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, and Joseph, and Benjamin. Where's Dan? Dan's missing. Ephraim is covered by Joseph. But what? Moses gave a prophecy that Dan would um, sit at the end to judge with the tribes of Israel. Yes, actually, there's a prophecy coming that he's going to judge. But at the same time, I want you to see something here. The answer to why Dan's not listed here in Revelation is too long to answer. And if anybody even said, here it is, and a real simple answer is, they're lying to you. There's no simple answer. There is a way that I could take an hour and walk you through maybe 25 scriptures to try to lay it out for you. But even then, I'm not 100% sure why. But this much I can show you. Go with me to Genesis chapter 49. Look at verses 16 through 18. This is what you're quoting here. Dan shall judge his people. This is when Jacob blesses all of his sons. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent, though, in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backwards. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. And then he goes on to Gad. So it's interesting. When Jacob blesses each of his sons, he prophesies that Dan is one day going to be one of the tribes ruling over Israel during the millennial kingdom. But we see another picture of, of Dan here as well. Is this a good picture of Dan in verse 17? He's going to be a snake along the way, a viper by the path so that he bites the horse's heel so that his rider falls backward. Most likely, and this is Jim Johnson's speculation, but I'm getting it from Scripture. Most likely, Dan was not usable during the tribulation period because of severe idolatry. But he's restored, and the tribe is restored in grace and mercy in the end. Remember, after the tribulation period, God's going to put them through a time of testing and purification, and then he's going to pour out his spirit upon them, and he's going to erase their sin, and he's going to bless them in the millennial kingdom. There's a chance that the reason why Dan is not used in the 144,000 as they go out to witness during the tribulation period is that because of his wickedness and because of the severe idolatry of that nation, that part of the nation, that God didn't use them. But God being rich in mercy, is it, do we not see that in Scripture? He brings them back in at the, end, at the end. Do we not see that in Scripture? That some of us, we don't lose our salvation, but because of persistent sin, God can't use us for purposes that He has in mind, and we miss out on reward, and we miss out on blessing. Very, very true. Does that God ultimately wipe Dan off the face of the earth? No. He's already prophesied that they're going to be a judge over Israel in the end. And he's one of the tribes. Again, pure speculation. <laughs> one would say, yeah, but he's the furthest away from the holy place. No, he's not the, totally the furthest, but he's pretty far, you know. <laughs> Don't try to figure anything else more than that. All we know is this. The Bible said that Dan was going to be a snake along the way to his brothers. And he was. For some reason, God did not use him during the tribulation or is not going to use him during the tribulation period. It's 12,000 witnesses coming from his tribe. But God, being rich in mercy, once he erases their sin and forgives them and he pours out his spirit upon the nation, Dan will be a part of his reward. There's one in every family. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> that means if you're an only child, she just said something about you. But uh, all right. <laughs> Go to Ezekiel chapter 48. Let's finish up our study tonight. You didn't think it was going to happen. Well, you didn't think we were going to make it, but we made it. Ezekiel 48, verses 30 through 35. These shall be the exits of the city on the north side, which is to be 4,500 cubits by measure. There's going to be three gates of Reuben, the gate of Judah and the gate of Levi. 
sorry, three gates, the gate of Reuben, the gate of Judah, the gate of Levi, the, three, the gates of the city being named after the tribes of Israel. On the east side, which is to be 4,500 cubits, there's going to be three gates, the gate of the Joseph, the gate of Benjamin, and the gate of Dan. On the south side, which is to be 4,500 cubits by measure, there's three gates, the gate of Simeon, the gate of Issachar, and the gate of Zebulun. And on the west side, which is to be 4,500 cubits, three gates, the gate of Gad, the gate of Asher, and the gate of Naphtali. The circumference of the city shall be 18,000 cubits, and the name of the city from that time on shall be the Lord is there. This is the city of Jerusalem during the Millennial Kingdom. You remember the, the Holy District piece of paper we handed out to you? It's going to be just below the holy portion. It's going to be import, included in the holy portion, but in the southern part of it, it's going to be 4,500 cubits square, and that's how, where it's going to be. Now, we started this study 18 months ago, and now we come to the conclusion of Ezekiel. This is the description of the city of Jerusalem with its dimensions and its gates, and the city is roughly six miles in perimeter. The, the city of Jerusalem is going to be, if you measured the miles all the way around, it's going to be six miles in perimeter. In the first century, Josephus recorded that Jerusalem was about four miles in perimeter. So at the time of Josephus, when, when the historian was writing all this historical account, the city of Jerusalem at that time was about four miles in perimeter. This one's going to be a little bit bigger. It's going to be six miles in perimeter. There's going to be 12 gates or entrances and exits in and out of the city, and each gate will have the name of one of the 12 tribes of Israel, and we just saw that there. Now, let me clarify for you, this is not the new Jerusalem in the eternal state. This is not the new Jerusalem in the eternal state. Because that one has the 12 apostles as the foundations and the new Jerusalem will be much, much bigger. You want proof of how much bigger? Go with me to Revelation chapter 21. We've got to keep in mind, a lot of people that study eschatology get the millennial kingdom prophecies and the end time or eternal state prophecies confused. I love uh, Randy Alcorn's book on heaven. It's excellent. If you haven't got it, get it. It's this thick, but it's a great resource. The problem is at the very end when he starts to speculate on certain things, he mixes up millennial kingdom passages with new heaven and new earth passages. And that's what makes some of his speculations a little bit sketchy, I think. All right. But go to Revelation 21. Look at verses 9 through 17. Then came one of the seven angels who has the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. And he spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride of bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like Jasper, clear as crystal, had a great high wall with 12 gates and the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed on the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with its rod, twelve thousand stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper and all this kind of stuff. All right, now, here's what I want you to see. The 12,000 stadia, if you have a study Bible, you'll see it's between 1,400 and 1,500 miles each side of the city. What was the perimeter of, of the Jerusalem and uh, the holy city in the millennial kingdom? Six miles. Do you know what the perimeter of the new Jerusalem is? 5,600 miles, roughly, if you were to go around it. The Bible also says that it's as high as it is this way and that way. That means between 1,400 and 1,500 miles high. Anybody have a rough idea how far the space station is? It's actually less than 300. The space station is less than 300 miles away from us right now. The New Jerusalem will go beyond that a lot. They're not the same city, folks. What we see in Ezekiel is not the eternal state New Jerusalem. The eternal state New Jerusalem is much, much bigger. Oh, and what will be the name of the city from that time forward? The Lord is there. The Lord is there. Jesus is going to come and dwell with his people forever. As you know, the scripture says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. 
But this is only going to happen when Jesus himself comes back. Folks, there's going to be a false peace. The Antichrist is going to confirm a covenant, and Jews are going to fall for it. Then they're going to realize they made a mistake three and a half years later. we got all these people in the world crying for the peace of Jerusalem. If we'll just give the Palestinians this and the Jews that, it'll all be good. We'll all have peace. The Bible says that in the end, when everybody's crying, peace, peace, that's when everything's going to, well, God's going to finish all his promises and his prophecies. What I want to close with tonight is Luke chapter 13. Go to Luke 13. As we see the prophecies unfold with Israel and all this going on in the world and the news with Syria and Iran and all this stuff, keep something that Jesus said in Luke 13 in mind and pray for that day to come. In Luke 13, verses 31 through 35, at the very hour some Pharisees came to, G to Jesus and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. By the way, were the Pharisees concerned for him? No, they just wanted him to leave. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, was Jesus referring to his triumphal entry when they all said, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? No, the answer is no. How do we know this? At this point, that had already happened. This is after the triumphal entry, when they were crying out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. After that is when he says this. Oh. I'm sorry? It will be all of them at that time. It'll be all of them at that time. But when will, Israel, will Jerusalem see Jesus again? At the second coming. At the end of the tribulation period to set up the millennial kingdom. Folks, the Bible says sometime between now and then he's going to come and get us and take us to be with him and he'll finish what he's planned for Israel. We're to stay busy until he comes sharing the good news of this living water for those who are out there that are thirsty and passing on the good news of Jesus Christ. Lot watching for the return of Jesus Christ. The church was never, to taught, never taught to watch out for the Antichrist. Did you ever catch that? We're to be looking for Jesus, our blessed hope. We, if we were to go through the tribulation period, the church would have been taught to watch out for the Antichrist. We were never taught to watch out for the Antichrist. We were taught to watch for Jesus. But the Jews were warned about the Antichrist. And they won't have peace until Jesus comes back and they say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And on that day, the name of the city will be changed to the Lord is there. I love you guys. It's been awesome. Hopefully, you'll join us in Matthew in a couple of weeks. Thanks for coming.